Thanks for tuning in to episode eight of Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reed Omri, and this month I'm sitting down with Dr. Neil Mehta. Neil is an internal medicine physician at the Cleveland Clinic. He also serves as the Assistant Dean of Education, Informatics, and Technology, and directs the Center for Technology Enhanced Knowledge and Instruction. Thanks so much for joining us today, Neil. Glad to be here. Can you start by telling us how did you first get interested in technology? Story goes back to 1995. I was going to be a chief resident in internal medicine. And if you think back, that was the time when the World Wide Web was just starting. 91, 92 is when Tim Berners-Lee put it out there. I went to my program director and said, our residency program should have a website. And she's like, yeah, sure, sounds good. So I put together all the content, and then I'm going to the vendor, and it was going to cost us $10,000. $10,000 to put on a website? And probably 10 static pages of a website. Obviously, the project was going to be shelved because people could not, at that time, really see the benefit of a website when you're already sending out these beautiful colored brochures to all the potential applicants. I said, I've put in so much work in this, I'm going to do this myself. So during my chief year, I learned HTML coding and a little bit of other programming, and I put together the website, and this was the first website of a residency or a fellowship program at the Cleveland Clinic back in 1995. After that, if anyone had any technology questions, they knew who to come to. So that's kind of how I got into this. So you were the go-to person then thinking of the intersection of technology and learning? So the learning part came a little later. So this was just a static web page of a training program, but the website really didn't teach anything. It was just information. What happened later was as I finished my chief year, I really liked the role of it being an educator, which is a key part of being a chief resident, but I also really enjoyed creating the website. And I started to think I need time before I jump into practice to see what works in education and how does technology fit in. We had recently started Clinician Scholar Program. It was a two-year program with focus on education and research at the Cleveland Clinic as a part of internal medicine. So I applied and I got that position and that gave me two years to figure this out. That's when I really got into more programming. I took a course online on Java programming from a guy who ran it from Texas. So distance learning of programming. And as I learned that, uh, I had a project about patient education. So I learned to write the code to deliver that project. And so that's when I got into learning was a patient education. You came at it from the perspective of how to help educate patients? I was an internist, right? This was, I was just going to become a full-time internist, and this was my fellowship just before then. And the hot topic then was cholesterol. I was seeing patients during this time, half the time, while the other half was my fellowship. And I would see a patient and kind of tell them about cholesterol and why it needs to, they need to do something different. And they would say, oh, I know cholesterol is bad, but it doesn't affect me, does it? This is not for me. Then there would be this long conversation, and at the end of it, we would end up sending them to a nutrition consult. 
and then they would come back. And after a long time, maybe they changed some behavior and maybe there was some change in knowledge. So I said, what if we could build something that patients could use, that they could keep using to answer questions? And they would answer the most important and common questions the patients have about cholesterol. So that is when I built the module. We did two focus groups and we got 10 commonest questions patients had about cholesterol. I programmed it. It was kind of crude programming, but that's all I had time for. Uh, did the graphic design myself to make the program. And then we ran the program. The whole program sat on a small floppy disk, one of those three and a quarter floppies that we used to have. And I would give the floppy to the patient and they would put it on their home PCs. And if they didn't have it, they would go to the library and see it there. After that, we did a knowledge assessment. So half the patients who had got a dietitian and the other half got this. The dietitian visit was only once. This they could use as many times as they wanted. About three months later, after each patient had gone through this, we did a knowledge assessment and there was no difference. So that was a study and that's how I really got into this and saw that possibly you could either increase the efficiency of helping people learn or even make it better. Fast forward now to 2018. We've come such a long ways from the initial days of the World Wide Web. Everyone has a smartphone. What do you see are some of the key technologies now for learning in healthcare? That's a big question. And I think this is evolving so fast. I mean, we didn't have smartphones a few years ago. And now we have social media, we have smartphones, we have all these online resources that are constantly expanding. And I think a lot of people equate that with overload of information and too many ways to do something, and they want something simple, like a book. I think you could do that. The problem is that the future is going to need people who can use these in a way that's actually helpful for them and their patients and their learners. The technology which will help them is going to keep changing. And so really the key point is their beliefs and attitudes towards technology. I mean, most of the people I work with have gone through med school or nursing school. They're brilliant people, very motivated and caring. So they can learn this if they want. The point is, do they want to learn this? And so it's really the belief model that a teacher has or a faculty has. And if you can impact that belief model, you can help them use the technology. It's almost not worth worrying too much about which technology because again, it's what problem they have. You know, one assumption we often have is that the millennials or the generation Y or whichever generation we talk about that grew up with technology and computers will be so savvy about using them for learning. And we have made this assumption and there have been papers written about digital natives and faculty have started to believe that they need to change and use technology because that's the only way they'll get their learners on board. They have to go and see them in these digital spaces. What we have found, and I think others have written about this, is that this is a bit of a myth. The millennials are very good at using technology for communication, but they don't automatically use technology to learn. And in a way, we are in a wonderful space because I consider myself the straddle generation and I can think about how I used to learn and what tools exist now and try and match them and help the learners understand what actually helps in learning. 
How do you respond when people react negatively to the introduction of a new technology? Initially, I used to get at least somewhat upset because they, I would feel like they couldn't see what I was trying to describe. But I've realized that that's true and I do the same thing myself, right? If someone tells me about something that I don't understand, I'm often negative about it. There's also a lot of preconceived notions about technology. And so I think having empathy for the person when they say, I don't like this, it's actually very important to put yourself in that position. And just like we learn to be patient-centered when we examine patients or treat patients and learner-centered when we work with students, if a faculty member has problems with technology, you need to be faculty-centered. And I think very, very often you can understand where they're coming from, and then it's just a minor tweak. And each person has a different reason where they're coming from. And so if you understand that, you can help them better. You're currently involved in the Cleveland Clinic's Watson project with IBM and the HoloLens project with Microsoft. What inspired those projects? I'll tell you the Watson project, uh, we had uh, initial three-year period, which has completed, and now we are discussing the next steps. So it's not in progress, it's uh, recently completed. Both of those, I think, you know, it kind of was the environment at the clinic. Also being one of these people who people come to for technology questions, someone would come with a question about something and it would trigger uh, this project. One of them came kind of from our CEO uh, who had met another person at a CEO meeting where they were discussing this and he asked me to look into it. So a lot of these things were kind of one-off things. We have tried many things and these two stuck, let's put it that way. And they're also very, very hot right now. I mean, I think if you are in healthcare and you are in a visual type of a science, radiology, right? Machine learning is gonna impact you especially if you are in diagnostic radiology, within the next five to 10 years, it'll be a big factor. You are in dermatology, there is already an FDA-approved tool for screening for melanomas. You are in pathology, you have machine learning algorithms to check for malignancy uh, metastasizing to lymph nodes. Now, these are that's not FDA-approved yet. All of these run on machine learning. So we are getting to a point where this is going to be a key part of how we practice. Immediately when this comes up, people are like, let's look at this and figure out, do we need to introduce it in the medical school curriculum? When do people need to learn about it and how much? So that's become one of our projects right now. And that was a key part of our discussions with IBM Watson is also, can this help students learn? Not just help clinicians, but can it also help students learn stuff? Can machine learning combined with natural language processing? You know, can you take a case, a clinical case from an electronic medical record, just the notes, and let students read it and a machine helps them parse it down to the possible differential diagnosis. So that was one of the projects we took on. So once it starts, I think the support we had at the clinic, the relationships, and the team approach, because we are all full salaried physicians and uh, we have lots of resources within our education institute and our quantitative health science institute, people work together on an exciting project and it takes off. I think that's kind of the best answer. 
We hear a lot about virtual reality and mixed reality in medicine. Uh, how far away are we from this being used in prime time? You know, you could think of using this for helping healthcare education, nursing and medical students. You could think about patient education and you could think about clinical applications. As far as helping people learn, anatomy is a prime target because that's all three-dimensional. And it's very, very expensive to run cadaver labs. And we have kind of grandfathered cadaver labs in and we all, that's how we always taught anatomy. Clearly there are benefits of using a cadaver, but do we need a cadaver to teach everything? Is it the best way to teach everything? And what are the outcomes that we want? for students when they learn anatomy. Is there a better way to get to those outcomes? I think this is a prime time because now the technology exists to do this. You could teach almost the entire anatomy curriculum without a cadaver. Is this good? Is this bad? Is it mixed? We don't know. And I think a lot of people are working on uh, projects like this and we'll probably start seeing products, full-fledged products come out within a year or two. The other side, the clinical application, I think the thing that's going to happen within the next five to 10 years, maybe less, is any three-dimensional imaging modality, especially those with high contrast, like if you're looking at CT scans and CT angios, for example, you will be able to see 3D projections. Instead of looking at reading slices, you will see three-dimensional entire a study in front of your eyes using a headset. And the question will be, is that where you start? You'll also be able to collaborate with people remotely on that same 3D model generated from a patient CAT scan. You can superimpose this 3D model on the actual patient and then possibly do procedures without needing dyes or fluoroscopy by using a lens. So all this you know, within the next five, 10 years, you will see one-off apps. Maybe in 10 years, this may be mainstream. Every time we think about it, how difficult or utopian this seems, you know, if we look back and see where we were 10 years ago, and we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have social media, and now it's already old, uh, this is going to happen very, very fast. The main limitations are, do clinicians have the time to be involved to do this, because if we don't, someone else is going to build it. You know, 23andMe really grew so rapidly by targeting consumers. Yeah. And now we see how 23andMe is partnering with a number of academic institutions mm -hmm. and actually conducting research yeah. Yeah. on some of yeah. them. Might there be a future where there are consumer-facing imaging technologies? That I think, that's a great point, and I think that will happen. Say you got a CAT scan done, and it's very possible there will be a strip mall where you get your MRI, and they will say, when it's done, this radiologist in Australia is going to communicate with you because it'll be the middle of the night here by the time it's read. So you put on the headset, and he'll walk you through what he found. Technology exists for this. It's just, I think the part that is missing is how fast can you turn this around right now? But again, I think this is where machine learning will intersect with virtual reality because you can probably develop pretty decent machine learning algorithms to do the segmentation, and then you would have the 3D model 
maybe within a few minutes. And just like you have a sliced CT scan mm -hmm. in a few minutes, mm -hmm. you would have this. I can't imagine trying to go over a sliced CT scan with a patient remotely without understanding how much they are learning from this, are they anxious? You wanna see the patient's face when you're trying to do something like that. So here, you could make it way more realistic and you would at least know they know which part of the body this is and what it looks like, how big it is, and explain the maybe even the procedure. You could possibly see that happen. Neil, thanks so much for sharing with us an exciting future where there will be more and more technology enhancing the learning both of our providers and clinicians in the healthcare system as well as our patients. What are one or two ways you think our listeners could incorporate the use of technology in either their teaching or their learning? You know, if you think about using technology to help people learn, the way I think about it is, are you trying to help person get some very deep foundational knowledge that is going to be reused multiple times? Or is it memorization of some facts that they need to get and they may change over time? But the foundational concept is probably not going to change too much. It may be embellished depending on some modifications. So if you want someone to really get the foundation, the deep framework that is constantly something they can keep evolving as they go through their training, I would suggest having them use a concept mapping tool. And there are many of these, and some are completely free, some are web-based, and some are desktop-based. But the best thing is you can put them in the cloud and you have it accessible forever. Imagine that you start in the first year and you're learning biochemistry or molecular medicine, you kind of start a concept map along some basic science concept. Then you go into pharmacology and you see how the medications may impact that pathway, for example, and you add that framework to your existing framework. And then you go into medicine or a clerkship and you actually start seeing symptoms of some conditions and you start prescribing medications and you see the side effects, you start adding that to the mix. One of the things that every educator has been asked to do is connect basic science with clinical practice. Even the Flexner report, that was the key outcome, right? This is a very simple tool that you can start prescribing to your learners. If they do it on the web, it's collaborative. So they can work together in small groups or pairs and also share it with the faculty member to make sure that they are getting the concepts right. And it's not just what they come up with, but the process they go through to build the map, that is the key learning activity. And encouraging learners and giving them the time to do this is a critical thing. The technology part is actually simple, but the beauty of it is you can constantly modify it, you never lose it, and you can collaborate around it, as opposed to doing it on paper. So is a concept mapped essentially a story of how you learned? It will capture that. So if you had versioning of the map, you could actually roll it back and see each tree that you added. Uh, you can do that if you want, but you probably would remember if you spend enough time on these things, as soon as you look at it, it'll all come back to you. Are there one or two freely available concept yeah, maps? Sure. So there is one out of Tufts. It's called VUE, and it's probably the most full-featured desktop-based concept mapping tool. 
Coggle is one that is probably the easiest to start because you just start a web page and it's there. And it saves your concept maps on Google Drive. So if you want to collaborate on concept maps, use Coggle, very easy to start, very simple to use. If you want a very full-featured one, download uh, on your desktop, Vue would be the one I would take. Well, thank you so much. And for all of our listeners, please share your thoughts on how we might incorporate technology into our learning habits. You can share your thoughts on Twitter with both myself, at Reed Omery, and with Neil Mehta at at Neil underscore Mehta. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And stay tuned for our next episode of Innovation Activists next month. 